The Self and Its Sources, Reflections on Virginia Woolf's The Waves, by Gil Bailey, produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 1. Henry Adams, in his marvelous autobiography, The Education of Henry Adams, says, the decline of religion made it necessary to invent the steam engine. And René Girard, in his book, Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World, says we didn't stop burning witches because we invented science. We invented science because we stopped burning witches. What's going on in history? Or, more existentially, why are we here? We're going to be talking, in part, in this series about some novels. Not many, but will be interested in the novelistic form anyway, and interspersed with that will be an interest in Paul and in the mystics. The word novel is a truncation of novella, which is the diminutive form of novus, meaning new. In the first instance, the novel is a little new thing, a novelty. And the first novel if not chronologically, at least uh, qualitatively, the first novel, fundamentally the first novel, many people uh, make this assertion, is Cervantes' Don Quixote. And so I'll use that as a kind of a benchmark. We've already talked about, we talked about Don Quixote last uh, series a little bit, and I'm not going to talk about it too much this time, but uh, I'll use that as a kind of a benchmark. Okay, what I'm going to try to do is start by talking about the novel, focus on the novel for a second, and then focus on a, its central aspect, and then try from that to see the whole picture of history, and then come back to the novel. Aristotle said the chief element in any fiction is its muthos, from which we get the word myth. Its muthos for Aristotle was its plot. So I want to take a look at the word plot, and I want to... And I'm being a little playful, you know. I mean, I, I, this isn't a scholarly exercise. It came to me to do this. And it's a little bit risky. So, uh, But I want to begin by quoting something so you'll see what I'm trying to do here. Uh, quoting something from Owen Barfield's uh, early book on uh, etymology. I forget the name of it now. History, oh, History in English Words is the name of it. And here's what he says in that volume in one place. Very little has heretofore been made of language itself, that is to say, of the historical forms and meanings of words as interpreters both of the past and of the workings of men's minds. It has only just begun to dawn on us that in our language the past history of humanity is spread out in an imperishable map, just as the history of, mineral, of, of the mineral earth lies embedded in the layers of its outer crust. But there is a difference between the record of the rocks and the secrets hidden in language. Whereas the former can only give us a knowledge of outward dead things, such as forgotten seas and the bodily shapes of prehistoric animals and primitive men, language has preserved for us the inner living history of man's soul. In the common words we use every day, the souls of our ancestors stand around us, not dead, but frozen in their attitudes like the courtiers in the garden of the sleeping beauty. The more common the word is 
and the simpler its meaning, the bolder very likely is the original thought which it contains. Well, the word plot is very familiar and very simple. And so I want to try out Barfield's theory of things on the word plot. But I have one more quotation before we get to that, and that is uh, Fustel de Coulange, who wrote a book called The Ancient City. By the way, he wrote this book in the same year that Dostoevsky wrote uh, Notes from Underground. That's not particularly apropos of anything, but it's interesting in terms of what we just talked about uh, in the last series. Uh, de Coulange was trying to point out uh, that the romanticizing of the Greco-Roman tradition was causing a lot of problems. And he wrote this book in order to sober up Europe from its romanticizing of the Greco-Roman tradition, which, of course, had fueled or been an important part of the, of the Enlightenment, the French Revolution, and so on. And uh, it was his attempt to, uh, to uh, put the facts out there and, and uh, interrupt the romantic uh, 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 attitude. So he says this, the contemporary of Cicero, speak, because Cicero, of course, is the, would be typical of the ones to whom they would look, or the, the Enlightenment uh, would look for this inspiration. And uh, Fustel says, the contemporary of Cicero speaks a language whose roots are very ancient. This language, in expressing the thoughts of the ancient ages, has been modeled upon them and has kept the impression and transmits this impression from century to century. In other words, this language forms our thought patterns. And the language itself was formed in ancient thought patterns, and so it conveys it to future generations. The primary sense of a root will sometimes reveal an ancient opinion or an ancient usage. Ideas have been transformed, and the recollections of them have vanished, but the words have remained, immutable witnesses of beliefs that have disappeared. Very similar to what uh, Barfield is saying. But he also adds this because he looks also, at, of course, at uh, rituals. He says, The contemporary of Cicero practiced rites in the sacrifices, at funerals, and in the ceremony of marriage. These rites were older than his time. And what proves this is that they did not correspond to his own beliefs. But if we examine the rites which he observed, or the formulas which he recited, we find the marks of what men believed 15 or 20 centuries earlier. So all of this is stored in our, in our language and to some extent in our rituals and traditions. In a way, what Fustel was trying to point out is that the Enlightenment rationality, which was based on romanticizing the Greco-Roman tradition, the Enlightenment rationality was, was a forerunner and eventually a subcategory of the Romanticism that later fancied itself to be the corrective to the Enlightenment. There's still an example of this going on today, this tendency to romanticize the Greco-Roman tradition. Aristotle said that the heart and soul of fiction is muthos, myth, and muthos for Aristotle meant plot. So I went to the dictionary and looked up plot. Now, I want to read you the definitions of plot and then go through them and see if there's some way in which we can see them all related to one another. They're the most, as you will realize, they're the most diverse kind of definitions. But here they are. A plot is, first, a small piece of ground generally used for a specific purpose. For example, 
and the example I think is important. For example, a garden plot, a cemetery plot. Number two, a measured area of land. Number three, a ground plan as for a building. Number four, the plan of events or main story in a narrative. Number five, a secret plan to accomplish hostile or illegal purpose, a scheme, the synonym for which is conspiracy. And then there are the verbs. To form a plot, to prearrange secretly or deviously, to plot an, an assassination, for example. To be located by means of coordinates. To form or take part in a plot or a scheme. And finally, to represent graphically. To locate points or other figures on a map. To draw a curve connecting points on a graph. Okay, so I want to I tell a story about the word plot. And my story has a plot. And the plot of my story is defined by the word, one of the def a couple of the definitions of plot, namely, to represent graphically, to locate on a map, and to draw a curve connecting points on a graph. And the story that I would tell about the word plot, which is really the story about fiction, which is really the story about myth, which is really the story about humanity, begins with the first example, the first definition of a plot in this dictionary is a small piece of ground used for a specific purpose and the two examples given are a garden plot and a cemetery plot and so my story would begin with the observation that the garden plot and the cemetery plot are the same thing and to show that I would go back to Fustel de Collange's work and observe what he says there a garden, you know, is land that, has, that is cared for. A garden is, by definition, isn't just things growing, it's things tended. That is to say, something to which we attend. And what is it that causes us human beings to attend? In other words, what is the source of our attention? We should ask ourselves, what made our primitive ancestors attentive? And then we could say, what makes us attentive, if anything? <laughs> In the primitive world, the source of attention is the sacred. It's the primitive sacred. is the source of our attention. Land that is cared for is land that we attend to. We only attend to what we are attentive to. What makes us attentive is, I think, the sacred. And, this is and, and then the question is, where, where does the sacred come from? In the primitive setting. Or where does the primitive sacred come from? And Fustel anticipates some of the work that Girard has done in this area when he says, Buried bodies of sacralized ancestors hallowed the ground in which they were buried and at the same time sacralized the perpetual rights to the land of the descendants and worshippers of the ancient one. So, he, so Fustel says property, and for that we could substitute the word garden, that is to say marked off land, property begins with a small mound under which is buried a body. And, that, and the sacrality of that mound spreads out, irradiates out into the field surrounding it. 
And so the garden and the cemetery plot are the same thing. By the way, the body buried in that mound, of course, in the world Fustel's talking about, is no doubt somebody who died a natural death, or very likely somebody who died a natural death. But the, the dying of a natural death didn't give rise to the sacrality that is irradiating that field because natural death doesn't give rise to the sacrality. You know, we used to have these, these romantic theories about the... because uh, a lot, there's a lot of evidence indicating that human culture begins at the gravesite. So there used to be these romantic theories that, well, these people sat around weeping for their long-lost relatives, uh, you know, the recently lost relatives, and the heartbreak of this made them invent religion. Uh, not likely not likely, particularly when you read the myths, and all the myths say that they murdered a monster. That's how things got started. So, in the original setting, not a natural death. Interestingly enough, in its own way, the biblical tradition is highly unique and interesting here because it says that, uh, and I think you have to understand it existentially and anthropologically, it says violent death precedes natural death first death in the Bible is a murder. Only after that do humans experience natural death in a human way. Does natural death become a human experience? The first death is a murder. Well, so Fustel is talking about the garden and the cemetery plot being the same thing. One of the definitions also says that uh, a plot is a measured area of land. And Fustel has something highly interesting to say about that. He quotes an ancient source, Siculus Flaccus, whoever that is, uh, who, wrote a, uh, who wrote a little exposition about the way in which the ancient Romans used to mark off their property. And Fustel and uh, Owen Barfield and so many other people would say, we must read these rituals as vestiges of something in the, in the distant past and try to extrapolate from these rituals to imagine what must have given rise to them. They were not the, they were not the products of a fertile imagination because if there's one thing the ancients wanted to avoid, it was fertile imagination. All the ancients were preoccupied with was strictly adhering to the ritual code, you see. There's absolutely no room for for uh, fertile imagination. We can use our fertile imagination trying to extrapolate from their rituals back to what might have produced them, but that's another thing. Anyway, here's what Siculus Flaccus says, and Fustel quotes him. First of all, the background of this, I'm taking it out of context, is that the, is that the uh, proprietor of this property would come along with a, with a flock of sacrificial animals, and he would walk down what, what was about to become the property line. And now, quote, This was the manner in which our ancestors proceeded. They commenced by digging a small hole and placing the terminus upright near it. Now, the terminus is a, is a tall stone or pillar or a trunk, tree trunk. You, see. you can just imagine what the Freudians would... Immediately at this point, the Freudians would go off and miss the point. Let's not do it. Let's not follow them. Anyway, the terminus would be set near the... the the whole. Next, they crowned the terminus with garlands of grasses and flowers. Then they offered a sacrifice. 
the victim, an animal victim, is slaughtered. The victim being immolated, they made the blood flow into the hole. They threw in live coals kindled probably at the sacred fire of the hearth. Now, this is very interesting because you don't look that interesting. <laughs> it's interesting because at the hearth, the hearth fire, the sacred fire of the hearth really is the, the sacred center uh, each family in the ancient world was itself a religion. And at this hearth fire is the sacred center of that family religion. With its, And it's, it's tied by religious connections to a larger uh, cosmos. But it's, it's a freestanding religious structure, the family and its property. And at the heart of it is the sacred fire on the, at the hearth. It's very important that this sacred fire is brought from the center out to the periphery so that the periphery becomes as sacralized as the center. Now, this is very... Where this comes into play is, and I'll show you in a minute it talks about, uh, it makes any transgression of the, of the periphery as grave an offense as it would have been had the transgressor attacked the heart of the, of the religious structure. You see what I mean? And, and so it sets up a force field around the sacred place in the center. So there you have the fire comes out from the center and as the coals from it are put into this hole. Um, and then grain, cakes, fruits, wine, and honey are put in after it. When all of this was consumed in the hole by the fire, they thrust down the stone or piece of wood upon the ashes while they were still warm and then proceeded down this line a certain distance, stopped and repeated this sacrificial ritual and repeated it and repeated it and repeated it until they had made a, they had enclosed the, the sacred land. In other words, they create a sacrificial force field that hallows the ground. The terminus once established according to the required rites, there was no power on earth that could displace it. According to the old Roman law, the man and the oxen who touched a terminus were, quote, devoted. That is to say, both man and oxen were immolated in expiation of their transgression. That is to say, to touch the sacred is to become the sacred. And the sacred is always uh, masked violence. The primitive sacred is mass violence. And so the sacred exists in order to stop violence and to keep that touch from happening, to keep the transgression from happening. It's what stops violence. And if someone touches it, the violence is unleashed on them. There are plenty of instances of this, biblical literature, mythological literature, uh, where the sacred is transgressed and the transgressor dies. Primitive religion in general, and all of the structures that it puts into place are designed to ward off a social meltdown triggered by rivalry and envy and conflict. So all of the structures exist to ward off violence. Plato says, let no one attempt to disturb the small stone which separates friendship from enmity. And he's talking, of course, about the versions of this same terminus. But notice what comes out in Plato's comments. 
This small stone separates friendship from enmity. The question is, how did it first how did we first separate friendship from enmity? Friendship is a little too cozy. How, the question is, how did we turn enmity into social camaraderie? Well, we did it. The stone is a vestige of how we did it. The, the terminus marker is a vestige of how we did it. And what's the terminus? What are the vestige? What are the signs of this vestige? A blood sacrifice and the creation of something sacred as a result of the blood sacrifice. So, uh, a plot is... So, I'm going through the definitions of plot here because we're going to talk about novels and they have plots. And we want to find out about plots. Uh, so, one of the definitions is a ground plan for a building. Well, I happen to have this story in my notes, so I brought it out. I think it comes from uh, Mirce Iliade's uh, work because uh, it's attended in my notes with a quote from Iliade, so I, I feel it probably does. There's a, a tribe in um, New Guinea. By the way, this ritual comes from early 20th century, maybe late 19th century. It's a, it's a contemporary, more or less contemporary ritual. Uh, a New Guinea tribe, when they, when they uh, it, it's time to build the building that houses their sacred rituals. The building is called the Dreamo. Uh, when it's time to build that, they, the building of it is itself a ritual. In preparation, the village selects an elderly couple who will be the principal participants and overseers of the construction of the building and who will be the sac first sacrificial victims uh, of the first ritual performed in it. The ritual sacrifice is essential to the sacralizing of the building. So they're chosen and their family is notified that they've been selected. It's highly prestigious. All sacrificial all people designated as sacrificial victims receive prestige, the sacred prestige. The king, you know, is the sacrificial victim with an extended sentence. Anyway, these, this couple inherits a lot of prestige because they've been chosen. Their elder son, he's part of the ritual too, the eldest son, he has to paint his face in mud and begin a loud mourning and lamenting ritual for his parents as they construct the, the, uh, the dreamal. The old man is, called, is now called the father of the Dreamo, and his wife is called the burning woman. <coughs> now, you don't have to read Owen Barfield to become curious about where a term like the burning woman might have come from, particularly when this ritual is so explicitly sacrificial. So the, the key ritual aspect of the construction of the building is the construction of a central pillar which, has to, which is put in the middle of the building, which is like the terminus, but you see now it's at the center because the center and the periphery are both equally sacralized. So there's now a terminus at the center, the, the axis of the world. In, the, in you know, innumerable cultures, this is the axis of the world. It is anointed with the, with the blood of, an, of a sacrificial victim, an enemy from an, a neighboring tribe. And so then Iliade says this, sacrifice is the key to creation in the primitive setting. And Iliade says, creation cannot take place except from a living being who is immolated. The mythic pattern remains the same. Nothing can be created without immolation, without sacrifice. Death by violence is created. Which brings me to the, somebody stuck in my mailbox the other day, a Wall Street Journal, and I don't know who did it. I don't generally read the Wall Street Journal, but this is an absolutely incredible story entitled, A Feminist Theory of Greece 
Parthenon Freeze. Uh, a New York University professor uh, has developed a new theory about the famous freeze of the, of the uh, Parthenon. And I'll just read from the story and then comment on it briefly. Uh, this icon of Western culture, now in the collection of the British Museum in London, is one of the most important and enigmatic sculptures to survive from ancient Greece. And Joan Brenton Connolly has uh, in, offered the world a new interpretation of it. The f and I'm quoting from the story. The 520-foot uh, frieze once ran completely around the outside wall of the Parthenon, the temple of Athena that, stand, that still stands on the Acropolis hill overlooking Athens. It clearly represents a religious procession of some kind with figures leading animals to be slaughtered and sacrificial attendants and musicians followed by chariots and a, caval and a cavalcade of nearly 200 horsemen. The procession converges on a group of five figures that once occupied a prominent position above the main door of the temple, a man dressed in a uh, as a priest and a young child handling a large piece of fabric folded like a sheet. A stately, a stately adult woman beside them, and two younger women carrying objects of some sort on their heads. Gods are in attendance, but turn their backs on the central scene. Okay, the new interpretation is based on a 3rd century B.C. papyrus that was found wrapping a mummy uh, that, that is now in the Louvre. And the papyrus turns out to have been a, uh, a lost tragedy of Euripides uh, entitled Erechtheus. And it's dated about 423 B.C., around the time that the Parthenon frieze was created. You look at me as though, what is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> this, is my, this, is, this is armchair archaeology. <laughs> okay. Uh, in the play... So in, in Euripides' play, the fragments that we have, here's what happens. Uh, the king, uh, Erechtheus, the king of Athens, faces an invasion by a Thracian army. He seeks advice at, at Delphi, and for once the oracle answers unequivocally, in order to defeat the invaders, Erechtheus must sacrifice one of his three daughters. But the girls had made a vow that the death of one would mean the death of all. Hearing the grim news, the queen delivers a stirring and patriotic speech in which she says, uh, If I had had sons and we were threatened by the Thracians, I would send them out to their death to fight the enemy. And, and this is quoting from the speech. Would I not have sent my sons into battle fearing for their death? I hate women who in preference for the common good choose for their own children to live. So the girls agree to be slaughtered. This is a stirring speech saying, hey, this, uh, you know, we, we're going to be heroines as much as they're heroes, okay? The girls agreed to be slaughtered, and the Thracians are defeated. One, com one uh, person asked to comment on this who's a, who, whose name is uh, Werner Fuchus. Uh, he's at Oxford. He says, all my life I've been puzzled about why the gods are turned around from the central scene. Now for the first time, there is a possibility to know why. In Greek mythology, he says, gods sometimes turn away from the death throes of mortals to avoid polluting their divine natura. Now, this is interesting, I think. Don't you see what's written into that story? 
You know, in the in the uh, tr Greek tragedy, the murder always takes place off stage. And the, the chorus, for example, in Aeschylus's Agamemnon says, the rest I did not see, nor do I speak of it. There's this, there's this reticence turning away at the last moment so as not to record the sacrificial murder. And even the gods are part of this, you see. Uh, I think that's quite marvelous. Well, but listen to this. Miss Conley, who I think, I, there, by the way, this is a controversial theory, but I like it, <laughs> having read about it in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> that's the source of my scholarship on this in this matter. Nevertheless, uh, Miss Conley s says this about it. Okay, she says, if the central monument of Western culture can be seen in part as a monument to the heroism of the three maidens, who, as willing victims and with the encouragement of their mother, gave their lives to save the polis. So much for misogyny in Greek myth and welcome to an expanded view of women as heroes in Greek myth and cult as truly celebrated in the Parthenon. Wait a minute. The title of this story is A Feminist Theory of, of Greek, uh, Greece's Parthenon Priest. In other words, this is a victory for feminist theory? I would say it's a victory for Girardian theory. The fact that the the fact that the uh, that that the ancient Greeks, the the fact that they were equal opportunity victimizers does not is not exactly a victory for feminist theory. <laughs> Nevertheless, there you have it. There you have it. This great building. <laughs> there it is. <clears throat> okay. The question is, what's the plot? Well, the plot is the mound under which the body is, which irradiates out and sacralizes the field, which becomes the cosmos. The cosmos and the corpse occur at the same instant. And in that murdering of the victim, humanity experiences its first camaraderie, its first esprit de corps. It's the first uh, embryo of human community. And it, uh, the, 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 the experience of the sacred uh, occurs at exactly that same time, the sense of awe. And it is ritualized and sacralized and mythologized and produces the myths and rituals of primitive religion, which are always sacrificial. The sacrificing of animals is simply a, 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 a reenactment of the, of the primal scene. In general, Iliade says, the cosmogonic myth has been shown to be the model for all myths and rites related to a making, a work, or a creation. The motif of a birth brought about by immolation is found in countless contexts. So, anyway, there's the founding scene. We're still on the trail of the plot. But the plot is the, the land, the, the, uh, the sacred, uh, the garden, the cemetery. Finally, we come to the version of the plot which we'll be thinking about later, namely the main story. If Aristotle said that the plot is the core of myth and fiction, Wendy Doniger, who's a, who's a historian of myths uh, and a mythologist, I guess you'd say, defines myth as an operative fiction, which is a a typically modern definition of myth. It is an operative fiction, but it's 
it's it's operative precisely because its fictionality is is suppressed. You can't. It would not be operative if its fictionality were to surface. And we live in a world where the fictionality of all the myths is surfacing, and you simply cannot. They cannot be made operative after that happened, regardless of how well you might convince those who live under the under the purview of the myth of the of the wisdom of the mythic tradition once its fictionality becomes operative it will only it'll survive for about a hundred years while everybody sells trinkets and then it's gone coleridge's idea of uh, the willing suspension of disbelief was a it was one of these romantic ideas it's an okay idea really in some some ways to try to put yourself into into the experience of people who believe these things but it's a typically western idea uh, and it's a concession to the to the power of Western skepticism. And Western skepticism, for that matter, is a product of the biblical tradition. Western skepticism cannot be entirely distinguished from West from the Western scientific spirit. As Gerard's comment implies when he says that we didn't stop burning witches because we invented science, but we invented science because we stopped burning witches, our skepticism and our scientific spirit have a moral core, namely an aversion for superstition and idolatry which is fostered by the biblical tradition. And that's why it's such a Western phenomenon. But our skepticism is well-placed because another definition of plot that's related to this idea of the plot as the main story in the narrative is a secret plan, a scheme, a conspiracy. So on the subject of the plot being a secret plan, I want to quote to you something from Pascal. And I have to acknowledge my debt here to my friend Andrew McKenna, who's written an essay on Pascal, which is typical of McKenna's work, is absolutely brilliant. And it, it certainly called to my attention these incredible insights of Pascal. And I want to bring Pascal in two places in today's material. Uh, and and this, is, this is the first of them. Pascal says, Whom will we choose as a ruler of a state? The most virtuous and able man? That sets us straight away at daggers drawn with everyone claiming to be the most virtuous and able. Let us then attach this qualification to something, something incontrovertible. He is the king's eldest son, for example. That is quite clear. There is no argument about it. Reason cannot do any better because civil war is the greatest of evils. What Pascal is saying is an arbitrary way of choosing the leader is preferable to, a, to, the, to merit because merit is subject to differing opinions. And it's pretty clear who the king's eldest son is. As, as you know, I've mentioned this before, but in many primitive tribes, if the royal family gives birth to twins, they're both killed. Precisely because there's ambiguity. And I, my friend Simon Simonsay, who was doing research in, in Africa recently, in the last five, five or ten years, found a tribe where if the royal family produced twins, they went through this elaborate and solemn ritual 
in which the two, two stools were erected in the center of the ritual, one about 18 inches higher than the other, and the two babies were brought out, and one was put on the higher stool and one on the lower stool, and nobody ever forgot it. It was an alternative to slaughtering them, but it was the elimination of that ambiguity. And Pascal, writing 350 years ago, is, is recognizing this problem. In another place, Pascal says, the greatest of evils is civil war. It is bound to come if people want to reward merit because everyone will claim to be meritorious. The evil to be feared if succession falls by right of birth to a fool is neither so great nor so certain. You say, okay, well, let's have it be the king's eldest son. Fine. Now, we know that when this king dies, it'll be his eldest son. We know that the present king is the eldest son of the former king, and he was the eldest son of the former king. And he was the, Let's go back and back and back. So at some point, you get to a place where it doesn't go back any further. You get the invention of kingship. You say, well, how do we get kingship? Well, we get kingship in the same way we get culture sacrificially, violently. The, the prestige, the sacralized prestige of the institution of kingship is a product of sacrificial violence. And Pascal is perfectly aware of that. And he says, the truth about, and he calls it the usurpation. In other words, there was a point at which somebody pulled a coup. Well, in primitive setting, it's somebody in somebody fell into this delusion that produces primitive religion. So Pascal says, the truth about the usurpation must not be made apparent. We're talking about plots. We're talking about plots. The truth of the usurpation must not be made apparent. It came about originally without reason and has since become reasonable. And Pascal says, we better let well enough alone. By the way, another friend of mine at the Center for International Security and Arms Control at Stanford has did a paper recently in which, somewhat tongue-in-cheek but not entirely, he defined democracy as the myth of the death of kings because it's born with the death of Charles II and Louis XVI. You see, so what Pascal is talking about is not remote from us in a way. So the truth, Pascal says, must never be allowed to become apparent. We must, quoting Pascal, we must see that it is regarded as authentic and eternal. And its origins must be hidden if we do not want it to soon end. It being order. The order over which the monarchy presides. In other words, we have to camouflage uh, you know the old thing about if you like uh, laws and sausages, you don't want to see either one of them being made. The same thing is true of human culture. And so Plato said, let no one attempt to disturb the small stone which separates friendship from enmity, which is the sacralized system, the system of sacred order. And then McKenna notes that Pascal and Girard both recognize the fact that human culture is, using McKenna's words here, quote, 
an illusory but efficacious hierarchy of differences and representations of differences, of images whose fanciful prestige kept humans from slaughtering each other. Prestige, the word prestige means illusion. And prestige is always associated with the, with the sacred system. So it's that set of illusions that keeps us from slaughtering each other. And we, Plato says we must not disturb the stone. And uh, Pascal says we leave well enough alone. If it's been turned into something reasonable and now we think of it as being this eternal and, and divinely ordained order, leave it there. Leave it there. The small lie at the beginning that covers up a, 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 a economical act of human violence preserves us from wholesale acts of human violence. Caiaphas says it's better that one should die than that the whole nation should be destroyed. You see, it's all there. That's the plot. And I, in a way, we would the world would be so much safer today if we didn't know it. Because as soon as Pascal says it must not be made apparent, do you see the irony in that? Pascal says the truth about the usurpation must not be made apparent. Who's he writing to? He just made it apparent. You see, as soon as we realize that it must not be made apparent, we have already, it has already become apparent to us. And that's the world we live in today. And Pascal is absolutely right when he, be, when he is extremely anxious about the catastrophe that might result from the, from the undermining of the whole sacred system once we realize it's based on that. The catastrophe that will result unless we can find another way of experiencing transcendence. But I'm getting a little ahead of the program here. I want to go back to this idea of fanciful uh, images of fanciful prestige that keep humans from slaughtering each other. Those are McKenna's words. Images of fanciful prestige which keep humans from slaughtering each other. The classic example of that is the last scene of, uh, of Lord of the Flies where these, where these murderous boys are chasing Ralph. They're going to sacrifice him. And Ralph is struggling along the beach and suddenly the British naval officer is there in his white uniform, all decked out. And the, the, the little English boys look up and the game is over. They just, they just, the, the little sacrificial knot that they have become comes apart. How does that happen? That's just another human being standing there. He's, he is the representative of the sacred system, the British Empire. He, has, he, he represents something sacred and transcendent to this craziness that they've fallen into. And, and uh, William Golding was perfectly clear about the relativeness of this whole situation because he later said, in another piece of writing, he said, you know, the British officer is about to take these boys out onto a destroyer which is out seeking to do uh, in, in its naval maneuvers precisely what these boys were doing on their island. So there's no absolute distinction anymore, but there's just enough to keep these boys from murdering Ralph. But we live in a world... That was written in 19, what, 50? 
where is it today? How many, how, how, how much murderousness will the British uniform stop now? You see what I'm saying? Uh, we're in a world where uh, bringing that sacred transcendence to bear is, is harder and harder to do. And that's because the biblical tradition has destroyed its power. So the British officer represents transcendence, something that's socially transcendent. Uh, the deus ex machina, you know, the God that just drops in suddenly and stops the whole thing. So the British officer represents, as McKenna puts it, an illusory but efficacious hierarchy of differences. Images whose fanciful prestige keeps humans from slaughtering each other. Only the sacred can effectively intervene in a society teetering on the brink of a social meltdown. Only something regarded as socially and metaphysically transcendent, transcendent to the parties to the melee, has the power to break the fierce reciprocities that are born of mimetic rivalry. Only, quote, an illusory but efficacious hierarchy can arrest the process of social undifferentiation which an outbreak of mimetic passion can so quickly bring about. Like the British officer in the Lord of the Flies, the sacred is a person, a place, a shrine, a taboo, which operates as an absolute circuit breaker or a line which no one will cross. In the same way, in that ancient tradition that Fustel's talking about, the, the terminus line, if it was transgressed, death. And the question is, how does this, this sacred transcendence come about? It's sacrifice that transcendentalizes human desire. And I, I think I can show how that is in two cases, one taken from, the, from a uh, Toltec myth and one from, a, from the biblical tradition. Desire, in the anthropological sense, mimetic desire is desire born of contagion, mimetic contagion. What I want because I have seen others wanting. And whether I want to have something pretty or to kill somebody doesn't matter. If I want because I have seen others wanting, then I'm involved in anthropological desire, or what Gerard calls mimetic desire. And sacrifice and the structures of a primitive religion transcendentalize our desire and, uh, and conjure out of it something that can ward off the worst consequences of desire. And I'll give you an absolutely classic story of this which we've talked about here before, and I'll do it quickly. And it's the story of the Toltec god Tezcatlipoca. Tezcatlipoca is a young man who comes into a, a, a culture world at the center of which is the god king Quetzalcoatl. And Quetzalcoatl is growing old and weak. And Tezcatlipoca is this young, beautiful, uh, handsome, strong, dashing young man who plays the flute and who... Uh, everybody's completely fascinated by. And as, Quetzal, as Quetzalcoatl is uh, presiding over the official rituals and, and cult of the tradition, Tezcatlipoca is out here doing his own thing, doing his little dance, playing his little flute, flute and people drift over. And uh, they, they find him fascinating, more fascinating than the traditional r ritual. And it's a mimetic process, of course, because when 30 of them drift over, then 60 of them drift over, and pretty soon 600 of them are drifting. So it's very quick in, in the sense of 
how fast the mimetic process works. So fast, in fact, that certain untoward things begin to happen. People begin to die in the scuffle surrounding Tezcatlipoca. And the myths that tell of this are very elliptical, of course, and you, you can't see what might actually have happened. But they say, well, there were so many that they broke a bridge and people fell and turned to stone. Uh, and So it speaks in a very mythological language about something that was causing people to die. And then, of course, Tezcatlipoca says, well, the problem is you need to kill me, which people only say that in myths. See, the myth is written after the fact. And, in fact, he is murdered or he's killed according to his own instructions. And after that, a, a shrine is built to Tezcatlipoca because they discovered harmony when he was killed. Suddenly, this chaos that he sowed by coming into town and playing his flute, like the Pied Piper, suddenly there's harmony after he's killed. So they realize right away he must have been a god. So they build a shrine to him, and they perform rituals there. And the great ritual of the year, which lasts the whole year, is they, they bring a prisoner of war from a native tribe, the handsomest prisoner of war they can get, and they dress him up like Tezcatlipoca in the finest of clothes. They teach him how to be very elegant and to present himself to others as attractive. And In other words, they teach him how to be a dandy, <laughs> what the 19th century uh, discovered to be dandies. You see. He, gets, he, he just is he's observed by others, and he's created in order to be observed by others and to arouse in others this kind of mimetic interest. And so for the whole year, he's, he, just, he does nothing but, but simply attract to himself like a magnet all the mimetic desire of his society. And towards the end of the year, he's given the most beautiful women as wives, and he enjoys them uh, in such a way that everybody re- immediately uh, uh, is fascinated by what's happening to him. And then at the sacred moment, he comes to the steps of the great pyramidal shrine, and he walks up the steps breaking his flute each step of the way until at the very top of the, of the shrine with the sun in the middle of the sky and the eyes of the faithful no doubt squinting because of the glare. He's laid on the slab and, and a priest takes a obsidian knife and cuts out his heart. That's the transcendentalizing of desire. That's the transcendentalizing of desire. That's how our ancestors dealt with the problem of mimetic desire. And it only works if, as Pascal says, we don't uncover the truth about it. As soon as we uncover the truth about it, we can no longer transcendentalize our desire in that way. We can no longer create transcendence out of sacrifice. And the question then is, is there another way? And I'll come to that in a second, but I want to offer a biblical echo of this. Again, it's one we talked about in the past. This is a story in Numbers 25 of Phinehas. The Israelites are debauching themselves with the daughters of Moab. So there's what Gerard calls a sacrificial crisis, a a social uh, undifferentiation, breaking down. The Israelites are offering sacrifices to the pagan gods, bowing down before the... the, uh, Moabite uh, uh, cult. Yahweh's anger blazed and he is about to destroy all the leaders of Israel. And then it says, a man, so they're gathered at the tent of meeting at the sacred shrine. And then it says, a man of the sons of Israel came along at exactly that moment. 
bringing a Midianite woman into his family under the very eyes of Moses and, notice this, the whole community of the sons of Israel as they wept at the door of the tent of meeting. In other words, structurally it's important. It was everybody watching. And he brings a Moabite woman into his own house. Remember, the house is, the sac- is part of the sacred here. And you don't bring pagans in. And then it says, When he saw this, Phineas, the priest, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, stood up and left the assembly, seized the lance, followed the Israelites into the alcove. There ran them both through the Israelite and the woman, right through the groin. And the plague that had struck the sons of Israel was arrested. This is the first mention of the plague. Now we realize, hey, there was a plague. The plague, in the plague, 24,000 of them had died. Well, references to plagues in, in myths, and this has a mythical feature. It's not mythical enough to have us really think it's marvelous the way other myths do. I mean, Joseph Campbell didn't go on and on about this one. So the, it's a myth that doesn't work, but it has a mythical feature. Uh, when myths talk about a plague, they're talking about a social meltdown, which may have been accompanied by a medical phenomenon of some kind. But the heart and soul of the social meltdown is human violence, uh, born of fear and, and, uh, and, and, and rivalry and so on and so forth. Well, t- the numbers are obviously out of proportion to what might have been the real thing. But some plague was arrested by a sacrificial murder. Medical plagues aren't arrested by sacrificial murder. Uh, and then it says, Yahweh spoke to Moses and said, Phineas, priest, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, has turned my wrath away from the sons of Israel because he was the only one among them to have the same zeal as I have. For this I did not make an end in my zeal of the sons of Israel. In reward for his zeal for his God, he shall have the right to perform ritual atonement over the sons of Israel. In other words, he shall be a priest and now he's going to slaughter animals on the sacrificial altar. It's a direct link between sacrificial murder and sacrificial animal uh, sacrifice. Now, what's distinguishing about the biblical tradition is that it doesn't it mythologizes so poorly. When we read that, we understand. It's very easy to see through the mythic veil to what might have happened and how it was conjured, how, what, what, how it worked in actual fact. But in both cases, to some extent... Uh, Desire, desire here meaning the mimetic process that de- degenerates culture, that dissolves cultural structures. In both cases, Toltec case and the Israelite case, it's that desire, the Moabites, uh, you know, bowing down, con- consorting with the Moabite women, bowing down before the Moabite gods, and the Israelite case, and in the case of the Toltecs, uh, leaving the rites and following this, uh, this uh, bon vivant, they thought around the, the Toltec society. The dissolving of structure gives rise to violence. Uh, and uh, it's that desire that dissolves, it's anthropological desire that dissolves culture. And it is transcendentalized in both cases by virtue of sacrificial violence. So sacrificial violence transcendentalizes desire. And Pascal says we must not know, if we want it to continue to do so, we must not know the truth about it. What reveals the truth about our sacrificial structures? The revelation of the truth of the sacrificial structures is the crucifixion. It's the only story in which, which is, first of all, historical fact, and which is a story not only about an innocent victim, because remember the 
the, the women in, this, in, in, the, in the Parthenon frieze are innocent victims. What distinguishes that from the crucifixion? The crucifixion is a story about the culpability of the community. And you don't get that anyplace else. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. You don't find that in Aeschylus or in the Parthenon frieze. That's the revelation, the delusion that we've been living under that has given birth to religion, culture, and order. Myths survive, the mythic element survives in the biblical tradition, but the Bible's demythologizing thrust is so powerful that it compromises even the most subtle and ingenious of the mythological gestures that find their way into the biblical literature. The Hebrew Bible begins the historical process, therefore, of breaking down the mythological spell cast by sacrificial violence. It does so often inadvertently. For example, in this Phineas story, when we read that, no, we don't fall, very few of us fall for it, some of us do, but by and large we see it clearer, much clearer than we would if we were reading a real myth because the revelation, the revelatory power of the Bible is so uh, awesome that it breaks through the mythic uh, pretenses. There's other examples. You know, I t- tell the story of the of the uh, the man who violated the ban at when the, at the Battle of Jericho. Uh, he brought back booty from the war. He wasn't supposed to do that. Well, they say somebody violated the ban. This is how the mind works. Uh, the The next campaign failed. That means we God was uh, un- displeased with us. That means we must have. There must be a transgression. The last. The, the last uh, requirement God made of us was the ban. Therefore, the ban must have been transgressed. Therefore, somebody must have transgressed it. Let's find out who transgressed the ban on Jericho. So they draw straws. Now, there you have it. There you have it. Inadvertently, it, it shows uh, the arbitrariness of the structure of, sacrificial, uh, of the sacrificial system. In the biblical tradition, however, the prophetic tradition takes over. And the prophetic tradition is explicitly demythological. The prophetic tradition is a demystifying moral critique of the monarchical power structures and the justifying myths that attend it. It's a very powerful and almost miraculous event in the history of literature. And all of that is brought to, as Christians see it, brought to its final revelatory uh, episode in the crucifixion. Now, the Bible's about a lot of things other than that, uh, including our immortal soul, but that's uh, something, maybe I'll touch on that in a second here. I don't generally like to tamper with uh, Girard's categories because I think they're sound, and who needs to reinvent the wheel? But uh, he does make a distinction, which I would add one little nuance to, and that is he makes a distinction in terms of our imitation. He he has two terms, external mediation and internal mediation. Mediation, uh, the mediator is always the model. External mediation is when my model is outside of my social milieu. And not only coincidentally outside, but absolutely outside, fundamentally outside my social milieu. And an internal mediator is someone who is a peer of mine. 
And external mediation does not give rise to conflict between the model and the media, the model and the, and the imitator, because they're in a different realm. So, for example, Don Quixote has as his model this character, uh, the knight errant, whose name is Amadis de Gaulle. Now, Amadis de Gaulle is... Uh, Don Quixote never falls into rivalry with his, with his model for two reasons. Amadis de Gaulle is this great uh, knight errant, the greatest the world has ever known. Uh, Don Quixote could never possibly vie with him for greatness. And secondly, because he's fictional. And so there's no chance that there's going to be rivalry. But internal mediation is when we, we, we choose as our models people who are fundamentally in the same social milieu. And in the Western world, the social uh, the hierarchical structures, sacralized hierarchical structures are being leveled. Isaiah says, you know, the mountains shall be laid low and the valleys... Uh, you see, it's being leveled. And so we, are, we have as models human beings who are in the same social milieu as we ourselves. And this gives rise to conflict. Kierkegaard says resentment is the constituent principle of the modern world. And he says resentment is what happens when happy, the happy love of admiration turns into the unhappy love of envy. And that's when the model that one is Imitating is inside one's own circle, more or less. And then the resentments occur. Then the jealousy comes in. And then all of the problems of, of mimetic desire awaken. The classic, one of the, I think, important examples of internal mediation is this, the, one of Willie Loman's sons in The Death of a Salesman, Hap, Hap Loman, who has as his model the merchandise manager who's his boss, about whom he says... Quote, sometimes I just want to rip off my clothes in the middle of the store and outbox that goddamn merchandise manager. I mean, I can outbox, outrun, outlift anybody in that store, and I, have to, and I have to take orders from these petty common sons of bitches till I can't stand it anymore. Now that is the we we should we should put that on some great that if we have if we were putting a freeze around the Parthenon that would be the modern slogan. I mean, that is exactly the kind of resentment that Nietzsche talks about and Kierkegaard talks about uh, and Dostoevsky talks about that is driving the modern world. And Girard's contribution is that he has diagnosed it in terms of mimetic desire in which the model is in the same social milieu with the imitator. Internal mediation. Uh, Hap Lohman says, that girl is talking to his brother. That girl, Charlotte, I was with tonight is engaged to be married in five weeks. The guy's in line for the vice presidency of the store. I don't know what gets, gets into me. Maybe I just have an overdeveloped sense of competition or something. But I went and ruined her, and furthermore, I've, I can't get rid of her. He's the third executive I've done that to. <laughs> Notice now the focus is on the rival and not on the object that is supposed to be generating the rivalry. He's the third executive I've done that to. That's internal mediation. That's what makes us crazy. The modern sickness, what Gerard calls the ontological sickness, is precisely that, internal mediation. We are profoundly mimetic. We will imitate. We will imitate. <laughs> There's no way around it. It's part of what makes us real. This is why we are made in the image and likeness of God. The question is, who are we going to imitate? Who are we going to imitate? And so I would add a category to internal, external mediation, I would add transcendental. 
because there is a huge difference between Christ and Amadis de Gaulle. Amadis de Gaulle not only was fictional, uh, but he was, he was a hero in the sort of pagan sense of the term. He was a character in the human cosmos in a, in a more limited way. But when we imitate God, as Christ did, Christ imitates the Father, when we imitate Christ as Paul did, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me, we are experiencing, we are, we are ex introducing ourselves to transcendence. We are coming into touch with transcendence. And the alternative to that is either a, a kind of innocuous form of external mediation like, like uh, uh, Don Quixote, who's a kind of a, you know, a charming buffoon his whole life. Only on his deathbed is he stripped of his illusion. But he doesn't hurt anybody. Or we become a sack of resentment like Hap Loman or the underground man because of internal mediation. So the underground man, I want to go... We, we talked about the underground man in our last series, but I want Dostoevsky's underground man, but I'll go to him because he's such a classic example of of the disease that Hap Lohman has and the disease that is spreading uh, in, in our culture uh, at like a wildfire. The underground man is with his classmates, re reunion with his classmates, a few of them. He hates them, they hate him. Uh, but he says of this little stiff reunion, he says, I tried my utmost to show them I could do without them. That, this is an incredible diagnosis of our sickness. I tried my utmost to show them that I could do without them. Is there anybody here who doesn't know what that means? <laughs> you see what I mean? Think about it. It's unbelievable. I, the other day, passed a television that was on. This was the Holy Spirit at work. There was an ad on the television. It was an ad for Levi's 501. You know those, my favorite pants, by the way. <laughs> Levi's 501s. And there on the ad, first of all, it showed this handsome young guy's ass. And he was wearing a pair of Levi's 501s, but they were worn. They were quite worn, you know, they weren't brand new. By the way, <coughs> I have a friend who exports used Levi's to places where sometimes people pay a couple of months' salary for these used Levi's. And he's a little morally troubled by it. And he said to me, you know, the, the thing is, people pay more for used Levi's than for new ones because the message of the Levi's is, in, in these other cultures particularly, the message is, I'm with it, and if they're faded Levi's, I didn't just get with it, but I've been with it. <laughs> <laughs> so you... <laughs> okay, so here's this Levi's ad. And here's this guy wearing some faded Levi's. And the voiceover says, and I stopped in my tracks and wrote it down. The voiceover says, when you wear Levi's 501s, they say, I'm not trying to be noticed, but I won't be ignored. <laughs> There's the message. There's the message, you see. That's, the, that's internal mediation eating away at our heart and soul. I'm not trying to be noticed, but I won't be ignored. That's just... There, now, there's, that's Dostoevsky's underground man. 
you know, doctored up and presented to the world. So here's the underground man again. He says, I tried my utmost to show them that I could do without them, and yet I purposely stomped with my boots, stumping with my heels. But it was all in vain, he says. They paid no attention to me. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Then he says, I had the patience to walk up and down in front of them that way from 8 o'clock until 11. In one and the same place, from the table to the stove, from the stove to the table, I'll walk up and down to please myself and no one can prevent me, I thought, to please myself. And then he says, once, only once, they turned toward me just when Zverkov was talking about Shakespeare and I suddenly gave a contemptuous laugh. I snorted in such an affected and nasty way that they all at once broke off their conversation and silently and gravely for two minutes watched me walking up and down from table to stove, paying no attention whatsoever to them. <laughs> this was the great victory. Finally, for two whole minutes, they watched me paying no attention whatsoever to them. <laughs> There's the disease. There's the disease. And we're talking about the novel and the plot. The world we live in is the world that has produced the novel. And that world and the novel as a literary form are dying. And the selves that have been shaped by the forces that have shaped that world and shaped the novel are dying. Pascal says, we are not satisfied with the life we have in ourselves and in our being, we want to lead an imaginary life in the eyes of others. So, Pascal says, we try to make an impression. Now, this is the great Pascal observation, and I'm, I'm getting close to the, coming to the end of this. Pascal says, vanity is so... Now, he's really... Pascal, 350 years ago, is seeing this before the disease really took over. I mean, it's always been with us, of course. But, he, but he's seeing it about the same time that Shakespeare was seeing it. A little bit later, but about the, in the same environment. Pascal says, vanity is so firmly anchored in man's heart that a soldier, a rough, a cook, a porter will boast of and wish to have admirers. And even philosophers want them. Those who write against them want to enjoy the prestige of having written well. And perhaps I, who write this, want the same thing. And perhaps even my readers, dot, 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 <laughs> isn't that marvelous and then he says a little later on then there are others who exhaust themselves observing all these things not in order to become wiser but just to show that they know them and I think oh <laughs> well, let me read it again. Then there are others who exhaust themselves observing all these things, not in order to become wiser, but just to show that they know them. And these are the biggest fools of the lot because they know what they are doing while it is conceivable that the rest of the world would stop being foolish if they knew to. 
To which McKenneth then adds, in sum, for the self to subsist as an object, it must be observable by another subject. And who is observing my life? Who is observing our lives? For the modern self, which is to say the novelistic self, Psychological validity depends on the observation of others. The modern self, the novelistic self, is involved in the same self-delusion expressed in the ad for the Levi's 501s. It prides itself on not, on not trying to be noticed at the same time that it takes great pains not to be ignored. For the modern self, the novelistic self, to quote McKenna again, deception is not willed but mimetic, which is why it is structural and systemic. 